Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution. Personalized M&Ms. Just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors, name, and even their photo printed right on some M&Ms. It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. 
And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Del Mar, California, and in particular, Lobert's Del Mar. My next guest was raised in New York, actually born in New York and raised in Southern California, which means, like most of my friends, she's not really a Southern California native. She's really a New Yorker, but doesn't want to admit it. Uh, but she happens to be the president of the Del Mar Art Center. And what's amazing about this is anywhere you go up and down the coast, Mady Morehouse is her name. Anywhere you go up and down the coast in California, you're going to see a great devotion to local artists. Yes, you will, definitely. What about Del Mar? Uh, Del Mar, definitely. I think we're a little more sublime in our art. Tell me, okay, what does that mean, sublime? Um, we have our collectors um, here in Del Mar, very strong collectors, but they're not uh, out in the public and not, yet not seen, per se. So, but if you want to see great art... You can also go to the Del Mar Art Center. Yes, you can. But will you find sublime art there? Oh, I'm sure you will. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, what do you do when you get to that art center? Because you have local artists who are on, on, on display. Correct, right. We right. have all local San Diego artists. There's about 36 of us. Um, um, many different mediums. Uh, right, sculpture. Sculpture, which I do. Uh, we have also the acrylic, the oil, the uh, glass art, uh, ceramics. We have a multitude of, multitude of uh, different mediums. And you have workshops. And we have workshops. We How does have, that work? Uh, workshops, we have a photography workshop coming up where they're going to be tied to, uh, they're having the workshop and then the, uh, they will enter a contest in which they will have their work uh, displayed on a local magazine cover, which will be interesting. What I've always thought would be interesting is to work with local hotels to showcase local artists in guest rooms mm -hmm. and do it almost as a rotating exhibit. We have. Because hotel yeah. art, let's call it what it is, mm -hmm. it's usually pretty bad. Mm -hmm. I'm, not, but I'm not talking about in the public rooms. Usually hotel art in public rooms is, is, is museum quality. I'm talking about in the guest rooms. Well, we have displayed in the main lobby area, but guest rooms, no, we have See, not. See, get working any. on that. Get working on that. <laughs> I would like to know if I go to a hotel that if I like the piece of art on the wall, I can buy it. That's interesting. You know why? Okay. But you know why? Because what do you do when you go to a hotel? You're actually test driving your hotel room anyway to see if you like the bed, the lighting, maybe the, the TV that you're watching. You're, you're not just staying in the hotel. You're seeing if you like this kind of thing for your own home, mm -hmm. right? That's true. I mean, I, when I built my house in, in Los Angeles, I furnished it from 46 different hotels <laughs> because I was able to say, wow, that one works. This phone system I like. This TV is great. The shower had great water pressure. I want that shower. The bed, yeah. The, well, you spent, the, of course, the bed. But the artwork itself, I just think that when you see great art and it's accessible to you and mm -hmm. it's available to you, uh, it, it, there's a couple of hotels in Chicago, the Intercontinental out of the airport. They have their own curators mm -hmm. and they do rotating exhibits in the rooms. And it's an airport hotel. Oh, my God. And you know what? People love it. There's a hotel in Louisville called 21C. Mm -hmm. It's not just a hotel. It's an art gallery. Mm. Right? That's I, a good idea. I, and you know what? Why wouldn't the hotels want to get involved in that? Because it showcases everybody. That's true. Right? That's very true. Now, but you travel a lot. Mm -hmm. I sure do. You have an exhibit now. We're in Hong Kong. I have a in Hong Kong, Washington, New York. Uh, I'm going over to uh, Sweden. Is there an exhibit in Del Mar? Uh, mm, uh, only uh, over uh, at the gallery. Ah, uh, see, okay. <laughs> that are my collectors. Now, <laughs> for the actual art center, though, the DMAC, how often is that open? Uh, six days a week. Is there an admission fee? 
No, no, no. It's, it's a gallery. It's a gallery. It's, it's an art gallery, yes. Yeah, exactly. People come in. They'll come at noontime. They'll stroll through. I have noticed that people kind of linger and enjoy the, the walkthrough and, and the artwork. So, But what has really changed in, in, the, in the art that's being exhibited here in Del Mar? Because, you know, the, I remember 25 years ago, a lot of the art galleries in Southern California always had, you know, the th oil paintings of whales. It was always uh, whales. Yeah, I, I, was, yeah. I got sick of whales. Well, when the races come, I do see a lot of artists bringing in horse, you know, paintings. And you explain that's, that's not the most original idea they've ever had. Well, they tend to do it because people come in and at that time, that season, they, they're in the horse, you know, uh, what can I say? <laughs> they're ready for the horse races. So they come in and we do sell a lot of artwork at that time with horses. In, you know, so in you've gone, we've actually gone from whales in Southern California now to, to horses. horses. In Del Mar. In Del Mar, yes, of course. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, you know, with all due respect, I can't see another Lorraine Neiman painting. I just <laughs> can't deal with it. You know. I agree. I agree. Good. Okay. But you're working with a lot of young artists now. Yes, young and old. We have some emerging artists that uh, have worked in different areas, uh, come to Del Mar, to San Diego, I should say, and are working. Uh, we have some later, you know, in their life. Uh, Artists that are uh, you mean older well people? Are you talking about older people? Yes, yes. very established, and we're very fortunate to have them. What's the biggest surprise for you in, in Del Mar? Forget the art, just about living here. The biggest surprise, just how calming it is for me. How I love it. I've lived here almost thirty years, and I think what brought me here was I always loved the uh, the trees of going to the forest, but I like the ocean. I have an affinity towards the ocean, and when I came down here from L.A. I said, I've got both. I've got the mountains and the hills and the forest, and I've never left. I love it. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now I radio clearance over. That's Clarence over. Over. Roger. Huh? In the interest of full disclosure, I've come back to this re uh, to this hotel, oh God, two or three different times over the last ten years, and it's always a, it's always fun to be here. Uh, in fact, the last time I came here, I actually took the train which is uh, just as romantic as it sounds, and stopped at the station and basically walked to the hotel. It's just amazing stuff. And that was not during race season, because if it was race season, it would be even more crowded with everybody dressed in their finest on their way to the track. Uh, joining me now, the mayor of Del Mar, Mr. Al Quarter. Mr. Mayor, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Peter. Rumor has it that the history of this particular location, Del Mar, it started out with a different name, Weed? <laughs> I heard your earlier guest mention that, and uh, I don't know the history of that. Uh, <laughs> so basically, you, you declined to comment. I declined to comment on the weed. Okay. Most of the, well, these days, everybody has to comment on the weed, but for other reasons. Anyway, <laughs> we'll move on. Uh, but you moved here 23 years ago. Uh, 1991 was when I moved to Del Mar, yeah. uh, moved back from the East Coast. And what brought you here? Well, I lived uh, in San Diego earlier than that, and uh, in... Uh, in uh, inland in the Rancho Santa Fe area, and then I moved back e east for a job, and, uh, and then when I, that didn't work out, I said I wanted to come back to California, and my kids and family wanted to be in the beach area, and Del Mar was the perfect place. So basically, when you get fired, you move back to Del Mar. Correct. I just want to make sure we're clear on that. <laughs> uh, but what, what, what keeps you here? Uh, it's just a quaint community. It's How many the, people live here? Uh, about 4,200 people. So you're time. small. Small town. Uh, it's a village. It's a village. Uh, incorporated in 1959 to that village concept, uh, for, really for the reason of when the freeway was going to come through uh, this part of California, they w wanted to come through Del Mar, and we kept it outside of the city limits by becoming a city. 
So basically, you, be, all, you yeah, and, you, and continuing to be a small village. Well, I remember we had a similar problem where I lived back in New York on an island called Fire Island, and the famous developer Robert Moses wanted to build a highway along the entire ocean, and people who didn't even get along got together for that one, marched on Washington, and uh, they actually got Lyndon Johnson to declare Fire Island a national seashore, <laughs> and that's what you got. You got a village, we got a seashore, right? And that stopped the highway. A little bit. Although, although not too far from here is the San Diego Freeway, or otherwise known as the 5, or the 405, depending on where you are, and there's too much traffic there to begin with. And coincidentally, it's on the outside boundaries of the city of Del Mar. So keep them out. Keep them out. <laughs> when people come to this resort, or to Del Mar in particular, what's the thing that surprises them the most? Uh, I think it's, as you say, the small, quaint village. Uh, it's a small town, two or three blocks. All the hotels and the restaurants are all quaint little um, uh, conveniences and the restaurants are great uh, but mostly it's just the proximity to the ocean and the beaches and i you know i i mention this all the time i love the idea They're up in carpinteria it's the same kind of thing on on santa claus lane you know no matter where you're going to sleep the train's going to come by but you love it right you know it's it's not like the movie my cousin Vinny, where the train comes by at four in the morning and wakes everybody <laughs> up but but although it does come by at four in the morning too uh there's a few trains in the night but most of them are during the day yeah the race season is when? Uh, it begins uh, after the fairgrounds, which is in July. So the fairgrounds, uh, Delmar Fair, or the San Diego Fair, as they now call it, uh, ends uh, July 4th weekend usually, and then the race season starts a couple weeks after that. And that's when the community swells a little bit in terms of numbers. Uh, the, this, the, uh, the community swells in the summer with a lot of visitors to uh, Delmar, both from outside of the state and uh, in the region, uh, coming down to the beaches or the fairgrounds. But on a typical day, how many people are going to go to the track? Uh, I think opening day is around forty to forty-five thousand, and then they average. About well, that's ten times the size of your of your village. Right, and then the uh, they average probably about twenty or twenty-five thousand a day. So, the obvious question you have to ask is infrastructure, and can you sustain that? You know, we uh, continually work with the uh, fairgrounds as to how to manage the traffic and the security issues, and uh, we we do it pretty good, and and they're very good at managing the events. Uh, so, but we do get a big influx of. Uh, of into the community with uh, traffic and the uh, beaches during that time of the year. I would suspect that people would come for the racetrack and then discover Del Mar. They do, uh, and and vice versa. That you know, now that they've come into Del Mar and they're also discovering the uh, racetrack. And I'm not too sure that the racetrack <laughs> is the destination anymore. I think our beaches uh, is really the destination. You a surfer? Uh, my children are. They still try to get me out there, and it's just not working. I'm also an East Coaster, so I. Wasn't well, there's always the middle ground. You could do stand-up paddleboarding. I've done that as well. They, see, they got you. They got me. You're wearing a wetsuit? Uh, I'm also a, uh, unless the water's uh, 75 degrees, I'm not going in. So basically you've been in once. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, we get, the, the water will get up to 75, 80 degrees in the summer. The biggest surprise? I mean, you came here because you, you left the East Coast, you developed it, here you are. But what's the biggest surprise for people who first discover it? Again, I'll uh, just say I think it's the small, quaint village atmosphere and the, and the beaches uh, and the proximity to Torrey Pines pres Preserve. Uh, again, it's just a beautiful area. You see, if you don't want to go stand up paddleboarding, you can be a real nutcase and try to do hang gliding in Torrey Pines. Uh, that's always an attraction. Not for you, though. Not for me. Guess what? Not for me either. <laughs> You'd have to have a gun to my head to do that, right? <laughs> I mean, bottom line is it's a great opportunity because you're only 20 minutes away from anything. Uh, it's centrally located in San Diego County, uh, and uh, you get downtown in 25 to 30 minutes, half hour you're at the airport, uh, and then, you know, 
20 minutes you're at Wild Animal Park and the San Diego Zoo and the Balboa Park. So, yeah, we're centrally located. What's the biggest issue at the city council right now? Uh, you know, we're uh, looking at some new infrastructure and putting in some sidewalks. What's the most controversial issue? Uh, controversial uh, at this time is probably the city hall discussion. We're moving ahead with a new city hall and trying to figure out the size of it. Um, and basically you're learning your lessons from the, the Illinois congressman and not redesigning it at somebody else's money, right? <laughs> not redesigning it at someone else's money is correct. <laughs> not doing the Downtown Abbey approach. Right, no. Yeah. He's, he's looking for a job. Maybe you could get him out here. Uh, no comment again from you. They'll be opening for city council <laughs> next year. <laughs> and as long as he's a Del Mar resident, he, he can run. He won't win, though. Uh, not too sure. <laughs> really? Oh, wow. Then I'll, I'll let him know because he's looking for work. Uh, Bottom line is, though, forgetting the racetrack season, when you come to this hotel, because it's only on 5.2 acres, it's, it's, it's not massive, it's not a big development, it's quite contained and manageable, which is mostly like what Del Mar is. If you are sitting next to a small child or someone who is acting like a small child, please do us all a favor and put on your mask first. couple of emails real fast. Here's one from, uh, from Jeff Walden. I'm looking to visit the cities of Beijing, Shanghai, and Hong Kong this year. Can you give me a recommendation as to when you would consider visiting each one? When I look online, I mostly see either April or September as the recommended times. Well, guess what? There's a reason for that. May, June, July, and August, it's hot. It's really hot, especially in Shanghai uh, and Hong Kong as well. But April and September better months, but my favorite month to visit, believe it or not, is December to about mid-January, except in Beijing. That's when it will be very cold, but Shanghai and Hong Kong further south, better times to do it, and in fact, if you're going to do all three, my advice is don't all do three, don't do all three at the same trip, just do two, it's just too much. Do Shanghai and Hong Kong in one deal, and Beijing in another, completely different locations on the map. Shanghai is very close to Hong Kong, in fact, you'd even take an overnight ferry and get there as well. I hope that's helpful. And uh, here's one from Susan Robbins. I really need your assistance in finding an appropriate suitcase for a three-week trip from Amsterdam to Prague on a riverboat. I have no desire for a 31-inch suitcase. I lean towards a 22 or 24 with four wheels. What are you going to do with a 24-inch suitcase for three weeks? And Are you kidding me? How many clothing, I mean, how much clothing can you get in that bag? Look, here's what you want to do. You want a suitcase that can wheel with a great center of gravity. Just because a suitcase has wheels on it doesn't mean it's, it's practical or designed well. And make sure the wheels swivel 360 and don't just go in one direction. But if you want a suitcase even that does have wheels in one direction, I like the Briggs & Riley. It's built like a battleship, but even better than that, it meets all the airline requirements. And even better, they actually have a guarantee that works. Because I bash my suitcases. I trash them. And you know what? Their, their warranty doesn't just do wear and tear exclusions. They'll fix anything. Uh, I tested that four different times. I sent it back to them. They fixed it. Sent it back. No cost. Check it out. Uh, other suitcases that I like tend to be heavier, though. Toomey's tend to be heavier. Hartman tends to be heavier. And it's all about weight these days because, remember, when you get to the airport, ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. That's when the airlines rip you off. That's right. For excess baggage costs that are, in many cases, more than your tickets. So 
Check out the uh, the Briggs and Riley. That's my first choice. I love Toomey as well. They're, they're they're made out of ballistic nylon. It's about as close to a Kevlar vest as you can get. All right, enough of that. Let's get to some important stuff like food. Uh, my next guest has a great story to tell. He's a college dropout, which means you know what? So is Bill Gates, and uh, his name is Brandon Fortune. He's the executive chef here at Lobert's Del Mar, and. Uh, from Atlanta, which of course explains why there's so much Southern food on the menu here. That's correct. Say it again. That's correct. That's correct. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, surprising menu. I mean, you wouldn't expect to see shrimp and grits in, low, in at Del Mar, but but there it is, right? It's there, yeah. Among other things too. That's correct. But what you're doing is you're really, you know, Southern food now is having a, a renaissance, if you will. Sure. It's growing big, but if you don't do it right, it still sucks. So, because everything can't be deep fried, right? Come That's on. That's correct. So, what are you doing differently? Um, I think we're we're trying to take Southern food and, and put a modern spin on it uh, with some personality. Um, you know, I, I I'm a huge fan of ethnic foods, so I've tried to take uh, take different curries and whatnot and, and put it into uh, to Southern food, but also doing the farm to table thing here in San Diego. But you know, everybody talks farm to table. It's like ecotourism. It's a nice buzzword. Sure. What does farm to table actually mean here? Are you working with specific suppliers within a 20-mile radius of here? Yeah, we try to use everything uh, within 200 miles of, of Del Mar. Okay. So, and we, uh, we work with a company here locally that will uh, actually bring in a, uh, a van every Thursday and slide open the door, and we can just kind of take our pick. and, and uh, Does the van stop? Van stops, yeah. Long enough to throw stuff out? It does. Okay, well, to make sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's, it's called the running farm to table. That's right. Okay. That's right. But then again, you explained to me last night, you have a rib dish, mm-hmm. right? Pretty amazing rib dish, but what was amazing to me was when you explained how you prepared it. Right. First of all, name the dish, and then tell me what you do, because I love the idea that you vacuum seal it. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a Memphis-style rib dish, and here in, in Del Mar, California, they don't like fire outside, so uh, we can't exactly have a big smoker out back and, and do it traditionally, so we have to do it kind of all with technology in the kitchen. So we actually uh, we sous vide it. and then What we, does uh, that mean? Sous vide means we cryovac it and uh, cook it into a submergent in a water bath and cook it at a very precise temperature for an extended amount of time. How much time? Uh, it's about 18 hours. And, uh, wow. Yeah, we cook it, and then we actually take it out of the vat. So we're slow cooking all the way. Super slow cooked. Then we put it into a uh, kind of a – it actually is a smoker, but it's a it's a box. Uh, it's all digital, and we program the uh, the time and temperature and soak the wood chips and throw it in there, and it finishes it off. Now, what's amazing to me is you can actually get the temperature down to a half a degree. Uh, a tenth of a degree. Hey, don't get pushy here. <laughs> you asked for the technology. I gave it to you. I know. So what do you actually – come on. So without giving away the recipe, what are you actually heating this thing to? Uh, well, we, we – you can put it at an internal temperature of about 225, and uh, it, it literally falls off the bone. It, it doesn't grasp probably the true smokiness that an that a outside smoker would give us, but um, it, it does the trick. I mean, every chef today, you know, we live in a world of celebrity chefs. Everybody's a star chef. Um, and everybody's trying to outdo each other on their actual menu descriptions. You're trying to keep it simple. Correct. So, but how do you do that with all those different ingredients? Uh, well, the, the ingredients are simple, and, and I, I kind of made it a point when I design menus to not have people Googling at the table and, and keeping their phones away, trying to figure out what, it, what an item is. I call it what it is, and, and uh, if I'm going to put cream corn on the menu, I'm going to call it cream corn. You know? <laughs> wow, what a concept. Yeah, right? Now, our producer, Dara Stone, is fanatical about her food, and she's one of those people, and you see them all the time at the restaurant. They have to take a picture of everything. Sure. Right? Does that bother you at all? Not really. I, th- I think it's flattering. Yeah, you know, if they're bothers they're, me. They want to <laughs> capture capture a moment. I'm I'm all for that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Here, here's what I'm eating. Here's where I am. I'm guilty. I do it. I do it as well. 
Do you? Yeah, absolutely. But where, you don't do it at your own restaurant. No, no. But if I go to San Francisco and eat, eat well, I want to be able to capture the memory and come back and, and revisit it for steal the recipe. Steal the recipe. Sure. Or, or try to recreate <laughs> it in my, with my own little spin. All right. So I got to ask this: in developing your menu, right? Because you came from another hotel before you came here, but you had a lot of great training, starting in Atlanta. What's the one item that you put in your menu that you thought, man, people are going to love this, and it tanked? And what's the one item you put on the menu? Say, who's going to buy this? And everybody wants it. Um, I would say the uh, we tried a Wyoming bison tartare. Uh, say, say that three times fast. Yeah, a Wyoming, right. bison, Wyoming tar- bison tartare. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of demand for that, isn't there? We thought there would be. Uh, <laughs> the staff enjoyed it. Uh, we probably ate more than we sold. You know what they, they? You know what they told me? Tastes just like elk. I'm kidding. No. Right. Uh, but nobody bought it. Uh, not as much. It wasn't a big seller. So it got 86. It got 86. And, this, and the one that's on the menu now that you're going, how did this stay on the menu? Uh, that would be the chicken and dumplings. Explain that. Um, uh, essentially a crock pot and milk that my grandmother used to do and did it very terribly. So it was memorable, but for the wrong reason. How do you improve on it? Um, I, I took the inspiration of the beignet and took the, the bit and actually fried it softball. Um, and then I take uh, yellow curry, which is a, a huge fan of mine. Uh, and, uh, and no, you're cuisine. a huge fan of it. Correct. Just uh, out it came. It turned into a, it's really not a chicken and dumpling crockpot meal, but it has all the components that a, that a crockpot would, but done in a very unique way. So putting that kind of food, it's a, it's a little bit of a risk. Sure. Right? Because people in Southern California really weren't ready for that yet. They weren't. Yeah. There's not many people doing Southern food in San Diego right now. So what are they doing? Fish tacos. <laughs> <laughs> carne asada there's nothing original there no exactly so um the southern thing is trending right now you know there's 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 vegas and uh there's restaurants in vegas that are doing it as well so and how much of it is deep fried the truth the 40, truth 40 percent of the menu okay yeah but it's it's heavy on the calories for sure i won't deny that right. but that's why it's so good if you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Let's go to one quick email here. This is from Travis Seedman. I, I travel a fair amount throughout the year and have been considering upgrading my airline membership. I'm su- I'm, I suppose he's talking about his frequent flyer program. Does being an elite member allow you to get tickets at a cheaper price? I'm interested in knowing if it's worth paying more to make the move. Well, here's the problem. Airline frequent flyer programs up until recently were a mileage-based program. If you flew 1,000 a, a miles, no matter what the fare you paid, you got 1,000 miles. Uh, now, Delta and United have changed it to a fare-based program. Americans about to do that the minute they finish the merger with U.S. Air, which means unless you're paying full bore, you fly 1,000 miles, you might only get 300 miles. So it doesn't matter whether you're an elite member or not. If you're not paying full fare, you're not getting any more mileage. In fact, you're getting less. So the answer is, with all due respect, it's not worth it. 
paying to make the move. Because the only reason why you want to be an elite member is to get an upgrade. And with the airlines flying at 86% load factors, the odds of you getting an upgrade are uh, slim and none, or slimmer and nunner. So um, anyway, that's my advice, and I hope you take it. My next guest on the show, a celebrity triathlete. In fact, he's in the Ironman Hall of Fame. His name's Scott Tinley. Scott, thanks for joining us. Welcome to Barrio Del Mario. Bar <laughs> nice to have you guys here. Barrio Del Mario. I haven't heard that before. How long have you been here? I've lived in this particular town for 28 years. My family's been in Southern California coastal since 1860. But you're a, you're a beach boy. I mean, you really something are. like that. I yeah. mean, look, you won the, the you won the Ironman in '82. You won it in '85. You haven't really retired, have you? Well, I've made some changes. I don't train as hard. I don't race competitively. Um, but you're still out there. I'm still out there. Yeah. What got you started in this? Well, I mean, like most people who were attracted to the sport became, before it became professionalized, it was just an extension of our lifestyle. You know, we would ride our bikes because we didn't own cars. We would uh, <laughs> swim in the ocean because we were lifeguards. And, you know, we, you know, we ran down to the store to get a six-pack of beer. Right, which basically fueled the bike riding. Essentially. I just want to make sure, yeah. But this goes back to, what, 1960? Um, the first triathlon was in San Diego, Proper down Fiesta Island, about 1974. Right, but you started running around way before it was it was, it was a professional. Well, you're sport. dating me, Peter. So, but no, but that's true. <laughs> Am I right? It's a... I did. I mean, you know, I can remember running or jogging back then, as we called it, in the late 60s, and people stopping and say, "Do you need a ride? Are you in trouble? <laughs> did you rob a bank?" But, well, by the way, if somebody saw me running down the street, they saw me running, they'd know I was in trouble because <laughs> I'd be running from something. But you had to get into condition. You had to train. What was your training like? Uh, as a full-time job, as the sport progressed to the point where it could... Became professional. Yeah, you, know, you had prize money and sponsorships and whatnot, like other professional sports. Uh, I, on average, the weekly mileage might be something like you know, 20,000 yards a week swimming, 350 miles of, a week of cycling, and 75 miles a week of running. So um, it's 40 hours if you start doing the math. It's a full week. It is. Yeah. How has it changed over the years? Uh, it's more scientific. It's more technical. Um, there are more opportunities for athletes at both at the amateur and the professional levels to find different outlets to earn an income. Um, I mean, it's it's gentrified and structured like like most sports who sort of come of age and and then finally you know are, are sort of beset with those kinds of challenges. But this region, Del Mar, is, is relatively conducive to the sport. It's perfect. Yeah, I mean, we've had the chance to move different places, and um, you know, we always come back. Because, you know, you have the weather, you have the trails to run on, you have the ocean to swim in, pools, camaraderie, I, you know. And it's, it's literally next to each other. I mean, you don't have to go far. No. I mean, I can hit the ocean, you know, with a two wood and a six iron, and, and I ain't going anywhere. <laughs> Neither is your golf game if you're hitting the ocean. <laughs> exactly. You're teaching now. Mm -hmm. I've been at San Diego State University for almost 10 years now. But you're teaching an interesting course, a sports humanities course. Yeah, I do uh, philosophy and ethics in sport, sociology of sport. Um, it's like humanities, right? So it's, it's not the hard disciplines, um, which is great for me because, uh, you know, I led, I led such a physical life, but I was always interested in the intellectual aspects of what I did. And so to kind of put all that together with some graduate degrees and have this great opportunity. Well, ethics in sports these days has got to be topic A. It's easy to teach. All you do is... You know, say, start, oh, no, start with two words, yeah. Lance Armstrong, and go from there. Exactly. Open the sports page. Every day is, there's a case study. It's, it's, it's wonderful for children. But isn't it fascinating that you have to teach a course like that in this environment in which we live in such a world of viral information, it moves at such speed, that 
nobody's listening to this. I mean, they're, they're, where, where are the lessons being applied? You're seeing every day somebody screwing up mm-hmm. where they knew better. This wasn't like an unconscious act. Yeah. Well, there's, there, there's a, the deeper theories behind that is, is that we, you know, we produce these sports heroes, we consume them, and then we dispose of them. And, you know, they live insular lives. Um, they're they're under-socialized. So for us to expect them, you know, to have the same sort of life experiences and, and morals that the everyday person has, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge. And not, not only that, they didn't start just riding their bike because they didn't have a car. They didn't just go down the, to the, right? They, they started for a different reason, maybe. They did. And, and then they were well-coached, mentored, pushed. Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go My next guest is the unofficial mayor of of Del Mar. Uh, You know... I will start off, before I introduce him, with saying that, and I said this earlier in the show, most people don't even know where Del Mar is unless they've maybe gone to the racetrack once in their life from Southern California. This man knows all about Del Mar because he's lived here for 42 years. Or 44. Excuse me. Who's counting, Jim Watkins? <laughs> How are you, sir? Very good. Thank you, Peter. You've seen all the changes, haven't you? I sure have. Sure I mean, have. you know, if you walk in the halls of this hotel, you see the old pictures of what used to be on this property. What used to be on this property? What used to be in this property was originally called the Stratford Inn, and it was a beautiful old Tudor hotel, uh, great lobby, massive fireplace, all the ambiance that uh, people wanted to come to and enjoy. Well, what fascinated me about those photographs was their pool. They had two pools. They had one in the ocean, which was sort of like this box. They put a box. (laughs) They put a box in the ocean so that you could swim in the ocean with ocean water, but not That's get swept right. away. <laughs> That's right. The purpose of that, people in those days believed there were sea serpents, believe it or not, and sharks. And so they well, they were come, half right. <laughs> yeah, right. So they could come to Del Mar, they'd be safe, have the wonderful beach experience, and not have to worry about the sharks. But the one, I th- the, but the the indoor pool, right? You had yes. the hanging plants there, and you and they had the slide, this water slide for the kids. It's great. Hey, you know more than I do sometimes. <laughs> well, come on, Jimmy. I looked at the pictures. Yeah, you're right. I didn't experience it, but but you remember these places. I remember these places. When right. was that torn down? That was torn down. The, the uh, whole, whole hotel was torn down. The uh, La, uh, La Bears, which is that was Del Mar Inn, or the Del Mar Hotel, was torn down in 1969. I came to Del Mar in 1967, and it was my dream to rebuild the legacy of the old Del Mar Hotel. That was the grand old lady. That was the heart of the, of the community. That was where everybody got together. It needed to be re- brought back. I and mean, when you think about it, each community along the California coast, if they were lucky, had one of those Grand Dame hotels. You had the Hotel Del Coronado in, in, right. in Coronado near San Diego, of course. You had this one. You know, if you keep going up the coast, you know, the Biltmore in Santa Barbara. You had the, 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 the real legendary iconic hotel. Absolutely. Absolutely. What was, but what was special about this one other than the fact of the stupid saltwater pool that I mentioned? Yeah. I, I think that the, of course, saltwater pool was gone many years before that, but I think that special about this, of course, is location, location, location. It's located right in the center of the village, so you can walk to 20 different restaurants, you can walk to the beach, you've got beautiful sunset views. I mean, it's everything that person would want for vacation. The hotel itself embellishes 
uh, the best of what the Southern California. And let's is. not forget the train comes run by. The, the train <laughs> comes. I love that. Right? Yeah, I mean, I, and it comes by a lot. It does. It comes by 40 times a day. <laughs> <laughs> Who's counting? <laughs> I am. I live, next, I live right on the property. Right. But, you know, I, look, the first time I came down to this hotel, the train actually did stop in Delmar. Yes, it did. And it was the cutest little station. You Absolutely. Could, you, you could walk from the station. Absolutely. Right? You could walk from the station. If you're here for the, for the racetrack season, that's where you got off. Yep. Why'd they close that station? Uh, they needed to build a much bigger facility. It's now in Solana Beach, and if you see the parking facility over there, it's a massive parking facility. Now they're building an, another parking garage of about 1,000 more cars. It just couldn't have been accomplished for what the uh, transportation system was trying to do in Del Mar. But it was a wonderful tradition. The uh, people used to park or come to the uh, Del Mar at the train station, and then they'd walk up the path to the old hotel, People in the pay and around the pool in the old hotel would greet them as they came in, and it was just a wonderful tradition. Uh, even when they left after losing at the track. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Most did. <laughs> <laughs> but this is also a celebrity stop. Absolutely. In 1937, Bing Crosby built the Delmar Racetrack, and when he built the, the Delmar Racetrack, he, of course, was the big name in the studio, and he brought all of his buddies down here. So there was everyone in the world of all the celebrities. Uh, I couldn't start the list, it's so long, but even J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director at that time, and the Prince of Monaco, and of course, uh, uh, Bob Hope, Danny Thomas, Red Kelton, uh, Mickey Rooney. Uh, so basically all losers, all, all losers at the track. All losers at the track. But they, they all the came to Del Mar, <laughs> and they, after they lost the track, they came here and partied at the old hotel. And that's the way they wanted it. That's know. the way it was. You know, and some of that tradition takes place today, you know, when you see George Clooney opening up restaurants. I mean, it's, it, the celebrity ownership aspect of it is not to be understated. That's true. That's true. And uh, as I say, the, uh, uh, it, was just, it was the heyday of the hotel and it was the heyday of Del Mar. But now we have this hotel. This hotel, even better. <laughs> what makes this hotel better? This hotel, again, the lobby is built as your front room, your living room so that anyone could walk in in either a tuxedo or a pair of shorts and feel comfortable. In fact, when I built it, I built it for my generation, and we had a large, large, massive fireplace. And the fireplace was a replica of the old hotel. In fact, one of the, of the uh, programs, when the uh, Liberace was one of the guests, and he came in the hotel, and he saw that candelabra sitting in the lobby, he put it on his piano. That's the first place where Liberace actually developed that tradition. Jim Watkins, 42 years. No, 44 years. <laughs> I got it right this time, didn't I? Thank you, Peter. Jim, thanks again. We'll be back with more of Peter Hamer Worldwide from Low Bears Del Mar. Check out the fireplace, not to mention the chandelier, when we return. There you go. Keep that going. This is Flight 372 on SWA. The flight attendant's on board serving you today. Teresa in the middle, David in the back. My name is David, and I'm here to tell you that. Shortly after takeoff, first things first, there's soft drinks and coffee to quench your thirst. But if you want another kind of drink, then just holler. Alcoholic beverages will be $4. If a monster energy drink is your plan, that'll be $3, and you get the whole can. We won't take your cash. You got to pay with plastic. If you have a coupon, then that's bad. Attention, David Hasselhoff. Not interested. I've got the real deal here from Baywatch. The chief lifeguard for the last 15, actually, for how many years? 34 years. Whoa. I'm getting up there. Pat, come on. <laughs> and you're still working. And I'm still here. You know, I look out, to, I look from, it's Pat Vergning, right? Yes. 
I'm looking out here, for, uh, out, out the window here at, at Lobert's Del Mar. The ocean is calm today. It's gorgeous, but it's still the ocean. Exactly. So in 33 years, right, you've seen a lot of change. A lot of change. You know, it used to be a very small little community, and then now it's, you know, surrounded by other communities, and uh, you got a beach where you're getting 10 to 15,000 people on a busy day. So you're talking a few million in, in a year. Absolutely. What's your biggest challenge? Well, obviously, uh, not having somebody drown or... Well, I got know, that part. You got that part. But yeah. uh, basically, nowadays, it's, it's really management of people. We tell people where they can surf, where they can boogie board, where they can swim, where they can play games. I mean, I remember when I was working for Newsweek, and I have to cover the Western White House in San Clemente with our friend Mr. Nixon, he's right there by the San Onofre plant and a great surfing spot. Yep. And the Secret Service was going nuts because all the surfers were going right by the presidential compound to go in the water. They had to cut a deal with them. Is that right? Oh, yeah. They had to cut. I'm sure you have to cut deals with these guys all the time to figure out what's good and what's not good in terms of location. Well, absolutely. I mean, fortunately for us here in Del Mar, it's, it's a very popular surfing beach. Um, to the south, we have reef areas. And the, to the north, it's mostly a sandy beach. How has the training changed? The training these days is extensive. I mean, a lifeguard in, you know, in, in the earlier days would sit in a tower, make a couple of rescues. Now they're trained in cliff rescue, swift water rescue. Fast water, right. Yeah. Um, you know, just a lot of training, a lot of medical training. We're talking to Pat Vigny, the chief lifeguard here in Del Mar for 33 years. You're scaring me with that. But uh, part of the training, I'm, I'm a volunteer fireman in New York, and we had to change our training protocols as well because we're on an island. Mm -hmm. A lot of water. Yes. Um, CPR has changed. Yes, absolutely. We're, we're no longer doing mouth-to-mouth. -mouth, we're doing compressions. Right. And, and lifeguards these days, they operate defibrillators. They intubate patients. Uh, so it's, it's just gotten extensive. What's the biggest surprise that people have when they get to the beach with you guys? I mean, wh what hasn't changed, I guess? Well, what hasn't changed is people come to the beach to enjoy themselves. So it's a fun area. You know, people are generally in a happy mood. Um, you know, that's part of the beach experience. Nude beaches? No nude beaches. So you're enforcing that too? Absolutely. And you love that job? Well, somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to do it. Was there ever a nude beach out here? No. Uh, to the south of our, our city, uh, there is an area that's nude, but uh, not in Del Mar. When, now, you have a junior lifeguard program too. Yes. We have about 800 to 1,000 kids that go through that program. Any kind of association with any of the hotels like Lobert's Del Mar where somebody comes, can come down here on vacation with his parents and go hang out with you guys? Oh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, we encourage that. We encourage people to stop by, visit our lifeguard tower, talk with the guards. Uh, Lobert's is adjacent to the beach. Um, you know, there's another, a few other hotels, but absolutely, we encourage the dialogue. How did you get started as a lifeguard? I was actually in high school, and uh, one of my buddies uh, was joining, and uh, he suggested that I join. And, and you were bored and had nothing else to do, so you did. Well, I figured, uh, you know, a job at the beach. Girls. Girls, sunshine, water. Girls. Uh, girls also, and uh, it worked out just <laughs> fine. <laughs> how, many in your, how many actual lifeguards on duty here? During our full season, up to uh, 70. Now, they don't all work every day, of but, uh, you know, on a typical day, you'll average about 25 lifeguards on duty. Wow. And what's the scariest time in your life? Uh, I don't know that uh, there's scary times. I mean, we've had challenges, uh, you know, fun sure rescues. Oh, Pat, there's scary times. Come well, on. I mean, uh, one of the memorable rescues was when we had a hot air balloon go over the ocean. Uh, it had caught, 
it was caught by certain currents, and uh, there have 11 people on board. And they couldn't, get back, and they couldn't, they get, couldn't back. get back. It was getting dark. And so, uh, you know, we had to basically rescue 11 people a mile out and bring them back to shore in the dark. So that was, you know, a little challenging. But you could track them. We could track them, yes. Exactly. So they had a radio. Uh, they had a radio. Uh, you know, what was interesting was everybody was really uh, dressed to the hilt because it was Valentine's Day. and uh, So you know what it was? It was chocolate, roses, champagne, and salt water. And we recovered the champagne a couple days later. <laughs> There's the upside. That's true. Did the champagne get returned? Uh, no, it was consumed by the lifeguards. Thank you very much, sir. Okay. <laughs> You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast on the new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.